This year, as we've moved through Holy Week, um, we've been looking at our Lord's passion through the eyes of the Psalms. Um, Many, many of the events in Jesus' life were foretold, and I, I believe as we study these predictive Psalms, we understand their meaning more fully. This morning, as we look at Psalm 2, we're going to try to look at the significance of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection. Why is it such a great deal? Why is it to be so highly celebrated and rejoiced in? And Psalm 2 forms one of the first two psalms in the Psalter that are sort of the gate to the psalms. The two great themes of the book of Psalms are found in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. In Psalm 1, we see blessedness is found not in walking in the way of the wicked, but in delighting in God's law, delighting in God's word. And Psalm 1 extols and opens with that blessedness. Psalm 2 closes with a different blessedness. The other great theme of the psalms and scriptures Psalm 2 closes, blessed are those who take refuge in him, taking refuge in the Son. So Psalm 1 finds blessedness and delighting in God's law. Psalm 2 finds blessedness and delighting in God's Son. Psalm 2 is very structured. Um, it, It occurs in four paragraphs or verses or strophes. And parallelism is used consistently throughout, which is saying the same thing two different ways. We'll read through it in just a moment, but if you look at the very first verse, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. We're not looking at two different events, as if there's a group of kings in one place and a group of rulers in the other. We're speaking of the same thing two ways. We're using parallelism. The other thing to note is that in each of the the three-verse strophes or paragraphs or stanzas, Two significant figures occur. The Lord, when you see the Lord in your Bible in all caps, this is God's special covenant name, Yahweh. The Lord occurs in all of them. And then another figure, but that figure changes. So in in verse 2, they are taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed. In verse 4, we see in the second strophe, the Lord again. But down in verse 6, I've set my king on my holy hill. In verse 7, I will tell the decree of the Lord said to me, you are my son. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son. So we had the first stanza of the Lord and his anointed, and the second stanza of the Lord and his king, and the third stanza of the Lord and his son, and then the fourth stanza of the Lord and his son. And what Psalm 2 does as we're studying the Messiah, the Christ, is it functions sort of as headwaters where tributaries come in and make a stream deeper, more powerful, (laughs) richer. Throughout the Old Testament, there were predictions of a coming prophet and a coming king and and a Messiah. The word in in verse 2 for anointed is simply the English translation of the Hebrew messiach, which we get messiah from, or if you translated it into Greek, Christos, Christ, Messiah, and anointed are Greek, Hebrew, and English for the same thing. And so when we're speaking of the Lord's anointed in verse 2, we're speaking of the Lord's Messiah, we're speaking of the Christ. And what Psalm 2 teaches us is this one who is the Christ is also the one who is the King, is also the one who is the Son. Tremendous insight from Psalm 2. 
Let's begin by reading Psalm 2, and then in, with the time we have, trying to understand its implications to the resurrection. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we're going to look at this paragraph by paragraph as we go through looking at the enthronement of the Lord's Messiah, Son, and King. And so in the first stanza, what we see is the conspiracy of the nations. The conspiracy of the nations. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what is this? What we see is a global, conscious, and theological rebellion. It's global, it's conscious, and it's theological. We're talking about all the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth. It's global in that sense. And ultimately, the final, what this depicts, is going to come at the end of the book of Revelation when the Lord returns. And it's global. It's not some nations against others. It's the entire earth, all the rulers. If, if the United States is still in existence, the United States will be one of these nations fighting against God. It's conscious. They, they know that they are doing this. It's not unintentional or accidental. And it is theological. They know whose cords they want to cast off. They know whom they wish to resist. Now, even as this, this psalm predicts a, a, a conflagration and a conflict that will ultimately find its culmination when the Lord returns... We also learn something else from the scriptures in Acts 4, 23 to 28. This is the early church. The early church um, leaders have been beaten, arrested, released. And the early church, we read this in Acts 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What we learn, here's your blank, is this rebellion, this conspiracy is always taking place. It is always taking place. The early church applied Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2 to the resistance they were encountering as they were preaching the gospel. They applied it to the the conspiracy to crucify our Lord. This is the nature of fallen man. According to Romans 1, within every one of us is this desire to, to repress, to hold down, to resist the knowledge of God and His rule. Why is God angry? Why, why does sin need to be dealt with? Romans 1.18 to 21 says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So that they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for corruptible things, the image of birds, beasts, and reptiles. What Paul is saying there is this, everyone knows God exists. I am an ah-ah-theist. I don't believe in atheists. I do believe people through intentional training and effort can convince themselves they don't believe God exists. But Paul says here that that every person is accountable for and every person deep down inside is aware of the existence of God and yet they're rebelling and suppressing. So what we see in Psalm 1 is simply the organized, structured, political outplay of the seeds that are in every one of our hearts. So the conspiracy of the nations, and it's against the Lord and it's against his anointed, his Messiah. And the Hebrew concept of anointed is one whom the Lord has gifted for service. So in the Old Testament, the the priests, the kings, they were anointed to serve. But as you read through the Bible, it becomes clear a special, a specific anointed one is coming. So in Jesus' day, are you the Christ? So they're rebelling against the Lord. They're rebelling against his Christ. They want to cast him off. How does does God respond? Understand you've got all world systems, all world powers, all nations conspiring against, unified in their resistance to God. Remember, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, insinuating they are his, and here they are rebelling. Is God upset? Is God nervous? Does this, this, you know, make him off edge, unease? No. We see the contempt of the Lord. The contempt of the Lord. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God does have a sense of humor. You just really don't want to be on the receiving end of it. Understand 
that the nations are as a drop in the bucket, as dust on the scales. Every human instrument of war, every nuclear missile, every gun, every tank, every plane arrayed up against God. Is God intimidated? Is God upset? Is God concerned? He laughs. He laughs. Moreover, notice what God has done about this. Notice the answer God gives. His declaration is clear. As for me, this is my response, the Lord says in verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's as if the Lord is saying, this global conspiracy and rebellion is of so little account, I don't need to deal with it directly. My king will take care of it. And as you read through the Bible, you see his king does take care of it. His king, of course, is Jesus what is God's answer to sin and rebellion and war and evil in this world? It's not in the peace treaty. It's in his son. God sent his son. He set his king on Zion. And his son, his king, his Messiah is God's answer to the problems in the world. His only solution. And what we're going to look at in the next strophe is when. And this is the key. This is where it ties into the resurrection. When did God set his king on Zion? What event are we referring to? And how, how does this psalm, which speaks of God and his king and his son and his anointed, tie into the resurrection? Well, really in the third stanza is where we're going to see that clearly as we look at the coronation of the king. We start with the conspiracy of the nations, then we turn to the contempt of the Lord, now the coronation of the king, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Behold, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now the, the point of view in the psalm changes before, we have some outside observer watching, aware of the conflict. Here's what the nations are doing. Here's what the Lord God does in response. Now we have the one who is identified as the son speaking. So the second stanza ended with the king being set on Zion. This is the, the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. And now, I believe the king himself is speaking. I'll tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. So what is this decree he's speaking of? If you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's critical that we understand the reference here. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we have is what is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. The God who is, it's a covenant-making God. He, he makes promises to people. He finds Abraham and he promises to give him a seed and to give him a land and to give him a blessing. And here, David wanted to build a house for God. He realized how good God had bed to him. The, the ark was staying in the tabernacle. And God in return says, no, David, you're not going to make a house for me. I will make a house for you. The, the word play on house and dynasty works both in the Hebrew and in English. And so let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over the people of Israel... And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you die down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now there's the language tie to Psalm 2. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So what has God promised here? What he said to David is, no, David, you're not going to build a house for me, but I will build a house, a dynasty for you. And I will establish this covenant. And what we notice is three things about this covenant. First, it is sin-proof. Sin-proof. David had seen Saul literally sin away first his own dynasty and then the kingdom. There's in two phases. You can go back to 1 Samuel and read it. Saul offers an unauthorized sacrifice. There's not going to be any succession of the house of Saul. And then Saul fails to kill the Amalekites. He makes a statue of himself. He spares the best of the animals. He spares Agag. He loses the kingdom. He loses his rule. And David was aware that the Holy Spirit who was given to Saul for service was taken from him, and a harmful spirit from the Lord was sent to torment him. David would, would play his harp and soothe his spirit. David had seen this happening. Yet God says here, when your sons sin, I will discipline them. But I will not take my steadfast love from this covenant that God is making with David cannot be broken by sin. David's descendants cannot sin it away. They can, by their sin, invite their own judgment, and God does that. The, the records of First and Second Kings are replete with some of David's wicked sons and grandsons bringing judgment. But God is saying this dynasty will not be broken by sin. It also won't be broken by death. It's death-proof. It's sin-proof, it's death-proof, and it's eternal. Ultimately, look at verse 16. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Which ultimately either means David's sons will have sons, will have sons, will have sons, world without end, amen. Or, eventually, it's going to come a Davidic son whose reign itself does not end. One other thing to note here, and this is the key in tying it into the resurrection, that language of, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And this covenant, we're most immediately speaking of Solomon. Solomon will be the one, actually, who builds the temple. So ultimately, Jesus, ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Yet we know it does speak of David's son, because it speaks of sinful men, and Jesus doesn't sin. So Solomon is the one. In the first instance, who God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And what that's referencing is this, that when Solomon becomes king, Solomon will enter into a new responsibility where he will rule over the people of Israel. He will act as the Lord's intermediate, his vassal, his ruler, his king. And to that degree, he will enter into this sonship relationship with God, which gets us to the next point. If the decree is the Davidic covenant, the son language, and you can turn back to uh, you can turn back to Psalm two, or even actually go to John five if you want. The son language is functional sonship, functional sonship. And what I mean is this: we oftentimes, when we think of father and son, think paternity, DNA, CSI. 
that the Hebrew concept of sonship is a functional sonship, like father, like son. So, so Jesus can say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons and daughters of God. He's not saying that you enter into God's family by making peace, but rather, to the degree that you make peace, you act like your father in heaven. And in John 5, is probably the, the clearest, fullest discussion of this. Jesus makes it clear that's what he means when he calls God his father. In John 5, Jesus has picked a fight with the Pharisees. He has intentionally healed a man on the Sabbath. He has intentionally set this up. And the man, Jesus tells him, pick up your mat and go. And the man is carrying his mat, and the Pharisees see, and they get upset, and they ask him, who told you to carry your mat? And he tells them. In verse 17, Jesus' answer is striking. Jesus answered them, my father is working till now, and I am working. Notice what he's saying. I'm claiming the prerogatives, privileges, the rights of my Father, God. If God works on the Sabbath and he holds together the universe on the Sabbath and he rules the stars and the sun in his course, then I too work on the Sabbath. And they completely understood that is what he was saying. Read the next verse. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You see, like Father, like Son. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is actually the basis for Jesus being able to make radical claims like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why is that? Because Jesus only does, plus or minus nothing, what the Father does. So verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing, Jesus gets total, 100% access to everything God the Father does, and Jesus, in response, does everything he sees the Father do, plus or minus nothing. That's why Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's a functional category. Back to Psalm 2. Which makes sense in the context initially of speaking to David's sons. You see, they're going to exercise rule just as God exercises rule. They're going to govern God's people just as God governs God's people. And so when Solomon becomes king, he, in a sense, becomes God's son here on earth. Which then makes the question in Jesus' case, when? When does Jesus enter into this type of rule When does Jesus, now in one sense, he was born king of the Jews, right? In one sense, Jesus has always been king. But but what event in Jesus' life catapults him, vindicates him, proves he is God's son, he is God's king, he is God's Messiah? What event is that? We don't need to guess. The, The New Testament gives us the answer. In Acts chapter 13, Verses 32 to 33, Peter says this, We bring good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Peter understands this verse, 7, in Psalm 2, is speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. So think about it. Jesus comes, and he is the one born king of the Jews, but in his, in his pre-cross existence, he's 
fundamentally focused on living our lives for us. He's humbled himself. He's not exercising his authority or his rule. He's humbled himself, and he he dies on a cross for our sins. But at the resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven where he rules. This is the logic that that Paul makes in Philippians chapter 2. Very well-known passage in Philippians. Have this mind in yourselves, which is in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 2 is speaking about a Davidic son who will come, who will become king, and in becoming king will, will act, become a son to God in a sense. And then we learn ultimately God's son is coronated through the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the point. Jesus Christ enters into his mediatorial rule. He enters into his kingship through the cross, which means then there's some deep and dramatic irony in the crucifixion because it means that the crucifixion was also a coronation. It's ironic, isn't it? They, they, they brought out the accoutrements of royalty to mock him, to taunt him. They put a crown on his head. There's a crown of thorns. They put a purple robe on him and a staff in his hand. They put a placard over the top of the cross that said, King of the Jews. And yet, in God's sovereignty, what they did in mockery, in reality, this is the event that is bringing Jesus into his rule. It's absolutely stunning and remarkable. When we read in John 19, there they crucified him and with him two others on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. They did it in mockery and yet God the Father ordains human history so that when his son is at his passion, entering into his rule in all the languages of the day, written on the top of the cross. No, no mistake, this is the king of the Jews. There was a crown, there was a purple robe. And so the deep irony of the cross is that truly this is Jesus entering into his kingship. This is why in the first three centuries, the early church spoke with great irony of Jesus reigning from the cross. It pleased God to so coronate his son. And that means also that the risen Christ is Lord of all. The risen Christ is Lord of all. Because that's where this stands and moves into. Because of his enthronement, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. What is this heritage? What is this inheritance? What is this um, rule over? It is the entire world. And so at the resurrection, Jesus enters into his his kingship, his rule, and the entire universe, the title deed of planet Earth is his. Now what's really important is this. In Psalm 2, which is primarily looking towards the second coming and the conflagration, what does Jesus do? 
with the nations of the world. He rules them with a broad of iron. He breaks them. He dashes them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, you want to avoid that. Now, Jesus also will claim his authority along a different line. You see, just as David was anointed king over Israel, yet for 40 years Saul continued to reign, even though he'd been told that he lost the kingdom. So Jesus now is awaiting his enemies made a footstool. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has been crowned king, but he's awaiting his father's timetable to crush his enemies. And so Jesus is now using his authority in a slightly different way. You know this passage, but think about the connection. Jesus, after the resurrection, appears to the disciples in Matthew 28, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me through his death, burial, and resurrection. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am always with you to the end of the age." What Jesus is currently doing with his authority as king is he has commissioned his people to go out and proclaim a message of pardon. The risen Lord, who is Lord of all, is exercising his kingly authority by offering a gospel of peace to all without distinction. It's amazing because Revelation 19, if you have a Bible turn there, depicts the awful scenario when Psalm 2 is ultimately fulfilled at the second coming of the Lord. Revelation chapter 19. So right now, Jesus is exercising authority by inviting all of us who've rebelled, all of us who've tried to cast God out of our lives to be sons and daughters, to be at peace. But, but I want you to see the fulfillment of Psalm 2 in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and sitting on it, one who is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There's the link to Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of of lords. This scene where the Lord returns dressed in white, when you show up to a battle dressed in white, you're pretty confident how that battle's going to go. And he shows up, and the sword of his mouth is his word, and the same one who spoke the universe into existence will speak and defeat his enemies. It's not a big battle doesn't matter how many tanks, aircraft carriers, bombs, missiles, satellites they have. He speaks, it is done. And this is what is what awaiting all those who would rebel against God, who would, who would refuse his offer of pardon. Which brings us to the final stanza of Psalm 2, and I'll try to be quick. Our time is short. But we've got to get to the counsel for the nations, the so what. 
The first stanza began with the nations, it ends with the nations. And here, in light of what God has done, and what God has done in response to all of our rebellion, what God has done in response to all of our sin and wickedness and all of our desire to do our own thing and live life our own way, is he sent his son, and he made him king on Zion. And he has given him, the name is above every name, he's given him all authority. He is Lord of Lord, King of Kings. So, so how should we respond? What should we do? God's counsel is threefold. Quickly, one, repent of your rebellion against God. Stop fighting a losing battle. Stop fighting a losing battle. You will not win. The entire arrayed armies of planet Earth will not even do anything. You and your rebellion will fail. It will fail. And if you think you're getting away with it now, it's only because Jesus is patient. It's only because he has delayed his return. It's only because he is not now crushing his enemies. But as Romans 2 says, do not mistake the kindness of God as the wrong thing. God's patience and kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. And Jesus has delayed. He's using his authority now to save, to redeem. Repent of your rebellion against God. If you've shown up here this morning as God's enemy, He is patient, and he is kind, and his reign falls upon the just and the unjust, just as it did last night. But he will crush you when he comes again. If you are his enemy, you will go down. You will be crushed. You will drink full from God's wrath. So repent. What's the second piece of counsel? Worship and serve him. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Initially, they're trying to cast off and fight the Lord and his son. Now they're told to worship and rejoice with trembling and to kiss the son. That language of kissing the son is accepting him as king. When Samuel anointed um, in Samuel 10.1, Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be a prince over the people of Israel? Instead of resisting God's rule in your life, instead of wanting to fight back, I want to live life my own way. I want to live life, do my own thing. I don't want to be told what to do. I want to determine what reality is. Now you're embracing God's rule. Now you're doing homage and fealty to his king and son. Now you're rejoicing with fear and trembling at God. And then the, the reason is given is clear. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Worship and serve him. And finally, take refuge in the sun. Psalm 1 opens with a blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, not, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's a blessing in loving God's word. Here, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You will face God. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. And if you show up as his enemy, if you show up having lived a life of rebellion to him, he will crush and destroy you. But if you take refuge in his son, you will have cause for rejoicing. Because the resurrection is God's declaration that Jesus' payment for our sin was sufficient. It was accepted. God's wrath is gone for those who are taking refuge in Christ. 
That's the counsel of Psalm 2. Psalms 2 celebrates Jesus being made king, king of the universe through his death and resurrection. And it gives us the counsel to stop fighting this king, but to love and adore him, to draw near and to worship him, and to find refuge in him, to hope and trust in him. That, that is the insight that Psalm 2 sheds on the resurrection. That is why the early church would quote this in reference to that. God has made his son both Lord and king over all. Let us adore him. Let us receive him.